You're in the water loop. Waterloop is made possible in part by grants from Springpoint Partners and the Walton Family Foundation. Waterloop. Hi, this is Travis with Waterloop. Water conservation is very important to me, and I bet it is to all of you. That's why I use High Sierra shower heads in my house, and I'm so happy to have them as a supporter of this podcast. High Sierra carries the EPA WaterSense label for efficiency and uses 40% less water than conventional low-flow showerheads. 40%. The model I have uses just a gallon and a half per minute. And because of their unique nozzle design, it's patented. Nobody else has it. It maximizes efficiency of water and energy use, but doesn't sacrifice on performance. You still get a powerful shower. Use promo code LOOP20 for 20% off at HighSierraShowerHeads.com. You're in the Waterloop. Welcome to Waterloop. This is Travis. Going to talk about behavioral science and water for this episode. Bo- joined by two guests from Rare, have Katie Williamson, a senior associate. Katie, thanks for coming on the podcast. Happy to be here. Thanks. And Philip Bujold, he is a behavior scientist. Uh, glad you could come on as well. It's great to join. Yeah, very excited. Uh, as someone that's worked in water for a long time, that cares about the environment so much, and is always frustrated by seeing people's behaviors, want to want to dig into this and, and learn a little bit more. Uh, I, I know this is a big emphasis for Rare is is driving environmental progress through behavior change. So you guys really work on this all the time. Um, Aside from my little explanation there, can can you guys explain how environmental problems often are behavior problems? At Rare, we often talk about the fact that behavior is really core to what, you know, everyday actions that humans are doing. So from who you vote for, to what you eat, to what you buy, um, our everyday habits. Um, and so we often say that, you know, with environmental challenges, um, they, they involve behavior because someone somewhere um, is doing something that maybe they're, you know, helping or, or harming the environment. Um, and, you know, oftentimes we look to direct resource users for this, but in reality, there are actors throughout the entire system from CEOs to government leaders to um, at the municipal level or um you know, fishers, farmers, we've got people throughout this chain um, who are all influencing this system. Um, and so all of their behaviors matter as well. Um, so when we think about something like water, um, we might think about um, using less water, so just conservation. Um, it could be not littering or dumping in water bodies, um, reducing fertilizer. So all of those things to us are, are behaviors that can really make a difference um, when we think about these big environmental challenges. What about the, I guess, the, the converse side or what your approach is at Rare, this idea of like, hey, we're going to go save nature, we're going to go save the planet through behavior change. What's that, what's that overall concept as a way to take on our environmental problems? Um, so for us, you know, there's, there's a lot of different ways of um, coming in environmental work. Um, and for us, you know, we've seen that some of our tools that we've been using in the field, like 
um, information campaigns or rules and regulations or incentives, um, they can be really effective, but we, we haven't seen them uh, working as much um, or having the kind of impact that we need. And so um, our team at the Center for Behavior in the Environment um, has really been exploring, um, among others who are, who are using behavioral science, you know, how can we use more tools, um, which I know Philip can, can share a lot of the work that he's been doing, um, and we can share, share more about our team as well. But, um, you know, how can we, we use these really powerful tools, like, and knowledge about, about humans um, in terms of us being a social species um, or the, the different biases that we have that influence our decision making? Um, and how can we leverage those to, to really help make a difference? Yeah, actually, building on what Katie just said, um, one really interesting thing also that we do at Rare is just try to leverage the behavioral sciences in two different ways. Um, and I think Katie and I kind of represent those two sides really well. Um, one in the sense that, yes, we do have this behavioral-centered approach uh, that we deploy. So we have behavioral science that informs our program, and we use it to basically better different conservation efforts. But we also have a whole different side that is all about training practitioners in the field. Um, so when we think saving basically nature with behavior change here at Rare, we think, okay, how can we implement this? But also how can we train other people to implement this? And so I work more on the implementation side and Katie is really one of our lead trainers here, helping build the field uh, for everyone in conservation. You have to have those like complementary parts of this, right? Like the theory and the science behind it really, and then putting it into practice, definitely. Well, we'll get into this for sure. When did this kind of concept get its start? It, when you look at the environmental field, you know, when did this kind of come about as an idea of a way to, to try to address problems? Maybe you can jump in with just a bit more general history. And Katie, if you want, you can jump in afterwards with, with how it ties in with nature and conservation. Um, so a lot of what we'll be talking about here has been kind of popularized around the 1970s. Um, so previously, a lot of the decisions we would make when it comes to the environment, conservation, would rely mostly on economic models um, and on what we call the information deficit model. So when something's not happening, it's probably because people don't know. And so all efforts were kind of focused on giving people information or giving people material incentives and um, economic incentives. And all of this was based in economic theory. And then around the 70s, um, behavioral economics kind of makes its uh, arrival in the world. Um, and so they started using a lot more concepts around psychology, introducing that into economic models and trying to understand, okay, we don't all behave like computers. Um, different things influence our behaviors. And so can we find ways of representing where our behavior is different from mathematical models, from computer models? and where we are inherently human, uh, with all our flaws and all our complexities. Um, so that starts around the 70s. Um, and for listeners, you might have heard the names Daniel Kahneman and Amos Tversky. Uh, so they won the Nobel Prize in 2002 uh, for be basically kind of popularizing behavioral science. Um, and since then, it's only grown. And around 2010, uh, you have the really the beginning of nudge units all around the world. And so those are practitioners that are behavioral economists, psychologists, uh, neuroscientists like me, that are kind of working on all sorts of programs to try and use the insights that are coming out of psychology, behavioral economics, neuroscience, and apply those in the real world. Um, so that's kind of where all this started. And, and this is very general. 
Um, and then obviously the environmental sector kind of picked up on this. Um, so Katie, if you want to dig into that. Sure thing. Um, so um, as Philip mentioned, the kind of field of behavioral science and applying behavioral economics to different social sectors um, has been has been going on for, for a few decades. And I think the, the health sector is probably one that has really um, used these tools um, most effectively and has done a lot of research and seen some pretty amazing uh, change through that. Um, and there's a, uh, a growing movement of organizations, um, research centers, et cetera, who are really looking at this. Um, in the environmental field, we've been a little slower to adapt these tools. Um, and so our work at RARE, um, when, you know, one, of, one of our goals is to really help um, increase the adoption of behavioral science um, and social science in the environmental field more broadly um, and, and to make these tools more accessible and, and easy to use um, for everyone in the field. Um, so there's there's been some folks, you know, in the last few decades who have tried this in different um, environmental sectors like or behavioral uh, challenges such as recycling um, or water conservation. Um, and now we're really seeing it be extended to a, a huge um, amount of different challenges. So whether it's climate change or water or food. So we're talking about behavior change here. What are what are the different types of behavior? Yeah, so I think a good way to frame this is probably to think about the different types of situations in which we, we behave. Uh, so different situations in which we have to make decisions. Um, and this is going to be a oversimplification, but I think also a very helpful one. Um, and so we think of different situations and behaviors in those situations in kind of three different ways. Um, so the main one would be what are the behaviors and the choices that we make in situations of cooperation? Um, so situations where the benefit of making a choice aren't necessarily directly obvious to me, uh, but in the long run, collectively, everyone benefits from that decision. Um, so that could be something like I have to basically take on a cost on myself or I have to stop doing something. Um, and a great example of that would be kind of overfishing behavior. Um, so everyone will benefit if people stop overfishing in the long run. Um, so that, that is kind of one type of behavior. And then the other two that we have are more individual based. Um, so these are decisions where you have individual benefits, but in one case, they might not be clear or obvious to you. And in the other case, they might be clear, but you might just not be paying attention to them. Um, so the first example could be something like, switching technologies when you are a farmer um, in a developing country you want to adopt new technologies new practices that are more environmentally friendly but you don't have any experience with them you don't know what are benefits you don't know if it will be successful for you and so that's kind of the first situation where you get individual benefits but you're unsure and the other one is basically any decision that's kind of made by habit uh, so where you know the information you know what you should be doing but you're just not paying attention to it at that moment so there's many different behaviors for that. Uh, one great example would just be turning off the tap when we're brushing our teeth. Um, so we all know that it's better. We know that it's a benefit over the long run. It costs you less in terms of water bills and it saves water, uh, but you might just not be paying attention to it. So those are kind of three good groups of behaviors that we can think about. And I think they're really relevant because they also tie into three specific cognitive biases that we all have. And so different ways in which our patterns of decision making are influenced by our evolution, our biology at the limits of our brain. Uh, so in one case, and tied to the cooperative behaviors, 
Um, we are social animals. Humans evolved to be social animals. And we all tend to kind of mimic what others are doing. Um, so we have this really, this bias towards the norm. Um, what everyone is doing is probably what I should be doing. And this influences a lot of our behaviors. Also, when you're trying to get people to shift, but they see that everyone around them are not. Um, then we also have this issue where we are all kind of averse to uncertainty. Uh, and that's a trait that we share with many different animals. Um, I studied primates before, um, and it's the same thing with a lot of our monkey relatives. Um, so anything that is uncertain, we are averse to, even though the benefits could be huge for us. And then the last thing, and something that I referred to a bit earlier, is that we have physical limitations to our brain. Um, so our brain is not a computer, it's not perfect. Uh, there are these limitations with the amount of neurons that we have, with the amount of situations that we've experienced. And economists refer to, to this as bounded rationality. So we are rational to a degree, and that degree is what our biology allows us to be. Um, so we can't pay attention to everything at the same time. We can't think of all the information we've ever learned at the same time. And we kind of fall prey to a lot of things that are salient in our environment. So we like to think of ourselves as perfect decision makers. Uh, but unfortunately, we are limited by how many neurons we have in our head. Um, so those are kind of the three main situations and the biases that relate to them um, that I think are really helpful for the listener to understand. Yeah, very, very fascinating stuff. Um, I wonder, I know one of the things then you do is you try to find ways to change the behavior, right? You have to, and each of those different ones probably requires a different approach. Um, I think you all talk about these being levers of behavior change. So what's, what's this concept of levers of behavior change? Sure, yeah. So... <clears throat> everywhere we, we have these, we call them the six levers of behavior change. Um, and this is, we have kind of three strategies that tend to be more commonly used um, that we've spoken about in terms of information and incentives and rules and regulations. Um, and then we've kind of expanded that, that work on um, our current toolkit with emotional appeals. So this recognition that emotions really drive decision making. I think we've all been in situations where um, a particular feeling that we have causes us to do something. Um, or uh, social influences, which um, Philip was talking a ton about in terms of the fact that we're really influenced by people around us, their beliefs, their behaviors, um, what they think of us, um, our own reputations um, among our important social groups. Um, and then the last one is choice architecture which is kind of just a fancy name for um, how our decision environments are structured or how, how are all of the, um, the decisions we make um, sometimes uh, built through these, these small cues in our environment. And so together we can use those, um, those six different levers in combination, um, as you mentioned, Travis, um, for applying to these different behaviors. Um, and, what the, the cool thing about a lot of the literature now is we're finding people are trying these levers in different combinations um, to see which ones work best. Um, so for water behaviors, um, as we can talk about, there there may be certain levers that we're finding just consistently are, are um, working more successfully than others. Great. Yeah, I, I look forward to digging into some examples here in a minute. I think I have one kind of last theory question for you um, around behavior-centered design. Uh, what is that and how is that applied? Sure thing. So 
Um, related to the levers, um, we oftentimes talk with practitioners who, um, or folks who have kind of learned behavioral science here and there, like, okay, but what, what do I do with this? Um, or how do I actually apply this to my work? How do I know, you know, where to put this bias or how to actually put this into practice? Um, so behavior-centered design is our kind of methodology or one methodology of going about this, um, where it's this step-by-step process that uses some tools and approaches from um, design thinking or human-centered design that really puts people at the center of solutions. Um, and it's this really iterative process. And then behavioral and social science, which is really kind of the, the theory of, of human behavior. And so we put those together and we put together the series of steps um, that help practitioners and, and researchers really you know, frame their problem, identify um, what behavior they're working on and those key actors, identify key motivations, um, connect that to behavioral theory, test and brainstorm solutions, um, and ultimately assess if it works. Um, and so this kind of series of steps helps uh, practitioners kind of put that, that theory into practice. Um, and we've, we've been working on applying that both in our own work and, and helping others do that as well. Cool. All right. So examples here. Uh, love to hear about examples of behavior change to solve environmental problems, especially if you have some water ones that you can throw out there. So a lot of the work we do at Rare and that we encourage others to do, like you said, is based on examples. So it's based on evidence, uh, things that have been recorded, have been measured, um, and the different levers that have been used that, that have been shown to work. And if I go back to like the three kinds of problems uh, that we're facing, so cooperative problems where everyone has to kind of change their own behavior for the collective good, then the individual uh, situations where either the benefits are certain or uncertain, for you, there's different types of examples that we can use to approach these different situations. And so there's a really good one uh, when it comes to social norms and trying to promote these cooperative behaviors um, that was actually piloted in the US, uh, in California. And so there's a program called WaterSmart um, that was used basically to send um, information about the social norm on water usage to different water users all around the state. Um, so water use is something that is actually quite private, um, not in the sense that people hide it, but just in the sense that we don't know how much other households are using. It's not a behavior that's directly observable. So you don't know what other people are doing, which is something that we use a lot to change our own behavior. And so one of the really ingenious things that the program did was give other people a sense of what others are doing on their water bills. Um, so on every water bill, they would basically put either a little smiley face or a frowny, um, <laughs> basically comparing someone to the norm and what other people around them are doing. So if you were doing better than others, you'd get a smiley. If you were doing worse than others, you'd get a frowny. And it sounds very simple, uh, but this tiny, like super cost effective intervention actually reduced on average in over 40,000 households, uh, water use by 2.5 gallons per day. Um, so that's around nine liters. And it costs nothing, basically, just adding a smiley or a frowny on the water bill. So that's one way to do things uh, using social comparisons. Oh, I want to I want to add that I I get something like that for my power bill, for my electric bill. Mm -hmm. It shows me your home 
other homes of comparable size and shows like, you know, in your area, how you did. And I always get mad when I'm, when I'm higher than the others, you know? And so I want to do better because I want to save the money and all that kind of thing. But there's also that competition. I'm like, come on, how are people beating me? I'm like this environmental guy. This is <laughs> so it, it drives my behavior on that front for sure. Exactly. And there's one really interesting thing actually with that bill that you're receiving. I'm not sure if you've noticed, but you get a comparison uh, in numbers of what other neighbors or other people like you are doing, but you also get that that smiley face. Uh, and that's two different interventions, actually. One is what we call a descriptive norm. It's telling you exactly what people are doing. And one is called an injunctive norm. And it's showing you exactly what people are thinking or what other people around you expect. So that smiley face gives you that expectation, whereas the number gives you that description of what other people are doing. And so those are two types of interventions that interact um, and in one way make the basically this bill even more effective than it would be. So, so that's super interesting use of, of social messaging. Um, and that's also being used in the water use domain. Um, there's other examples also where you don't do individual comparisons, but you do comparisons with different neighborhoods. Um, so that's been used in Costa Rica where they compare and pit different neighborhoods against one another. That's also been effective. And then you have more drastic measures. Um, and then those come from mainly South Africa. Um, so I'm not sure if everyone remembers day zero, uh, when Cape town was running out of water, uh, they had to be very creative with the different interventions they were deploying. And a really good one that they had, um, which might or might not apply well to other countries, um, was that they would name and shame the highest water users in different neighborhoods. Um, <laughs> so you would have a list of like the top 100 water users, um, and that would be published in the media and the newspaper. And so it was a way to, to get people basically at, at, their, at their emotions, uh, comparing them to others and really singling them out to try and reduce their, their water consumption. And it reduced water by about 6%. So it was pretty effective. Yeah, that, that is drastic. That, that is something else that, that might not fly in other places, uh, but, but that's, I like that. No, exactly. I, I saw this sign recently I want to put ask you, you both about here I, uh, at this beach where I you know, was kind of along the sidewalk. Uh, and it's the opposite of what I usually see on the signs that encourage people to pick up after their pets. Um, this, one, this one says, why didn't you clean up after your dog? And then it has a checklist. I don't care about natural areas. Mommy still cleans up after me. I forgot to train my dog. I like to pay large fines, all of the above. So it's, it's like, uh, you know, I don't know if you could, if you could analyze that on the fly, but it was the first time in all of my travels that I've seen like that reverse approach there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's really interesting. That um, it makes me think a little bit about like cognitive dissonance, like you have, which is a term to say you've got to kind of reckon with um, what you're doing and what you're thinking. Mm -hmm. um, you might read this sign, and and you you might have seen there. I've seen this a little bit now on. Um, digital um, platforms too, where you'll like, it'll ask you to subscribe and the checkbox might be like, I don't like fun things or I don't want to get stuff that's interesting. Um, and it reminds me of this similar, you have to kind of in that moment, um, it, it catches you off guard because there's this kind of identity conflict. It's like, well, no, I'm not that person, um, but you are doing something that's in conflict with it. Um, so it's, it does seem like a, an interesting way to at least cause people to stop and think, which yeah. um, as Philip was mentioning earlier, you know, our attention sometimes is just such a limited resource. 
Um, and so just even getting people to pause and look at something and say, hey, wait a minute, what is that um, can actually be such a just even a powerful moment. Yeah, probably every probably a lot of people are used to seeing the, the traditional signs, you know, about picking up after your pet. And that's why <laughs> I was even like jogging and running and it just caught my eye. So I stopped and took a picture and all that stuff. But um, mm -hmm. I'd, I'd love to hear a little more, I guess, in, in kind of closing about how you all rare, you know, work to advance the use of behavior change for environmental solutions. It's really a huge focus for you. You have this actual center that's that's focused on it. So yeah, I'd love to, to hear about that. Yeah, so I can pick up on this a little bit. Um, here, like I was saying earlier, um, Katie and I kind of represent the two sides here of the work that the, the center does. Um, one is all about training practitioners in the field and more people to adopt this behavior evidence-based uh, approach to conservation and environmental practices. The other one is about how do we deploy um, different evidence, different sets of evidence into our own sets of practices. Um, so Rare does a lot of training, but we also have our own in-house programs. Um, so right now we have three big ones, uh, one called Lands for Life, which is deployed in Colombia, uh, which is all about using behavioral science to get farmers to adopt more climate-friendly agricultural practices. And so those relate directly to how do we decrease water use? How do we decrease um, overuse of fertilizer that then runs off in water? Um, so that's one of our big programs. Then our major, major one, is uh, Fish Forever, which is all about coastal fisheries management. And so there we have a lot of different efforts built around helping people with their finances around these fishing communities, helping people set up different uh, fishing reserves so that they can stop overfishing in certain parts and let nature basically recover. And then we have a final program called Make It Personal, which is deployed in the US. And that's all about basically using behavioral science to help people reduce their carbon footprint um, so those are kind of the three main programs that we have. And then we have all sorts of different services offered. We have behavior.rare.org, which is a tool that we've launched uh, to help practitioners get access to all types of levers and evidence that we have out there. We have Solution Search, which is a big competition of different behavioral interventions all around the world. And the one right now actually is all about water pollution. Um, and then we do all sorts of trainings, research. Um, so we're really trying to get involved all across the board. Fantastic. I love that you all <clears throat> aren't just kind of keeping the secrets to yourselves. Your, your idea is like studying the science, developing tools and putting it out there and hoping that it spreads and you can kind of create change everywhere. That's, that's the idea. Awesome. Well, Katie and Philip, I appreciate your time and the, the dive into science here. Uh, really interesting stuff. Um, but yeah, thank you both so much. Thanks for having thank us. Thanks, everyone, for listening to today's episode. A special thanks to Waterloop supporters, Springpoint Partners, and the Walton Family Foundation. The Waterloop Podcast is sponsored by High Sierra Showerheads, the smart, stylish way to save energy, water, and money while enjoying a powerful shower. Use promo code LOOP20 for 20% off at HighSierraShowerheads.com. If you like Waterloop, Please subscribe to the YouTube channel or your favorite podcast platform. Follow us on social media and visit waterloop.org to sign up for updates. Waterloop, Waterloop, Waterloop.